back to another edition of the Alonzo Bet. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we are coming to you today with another great episode. We are going to get into a very exciting and very contentious proposal to start the Major League season. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. A lot to unpack there. We're going to hit you with a new stat corner, our very first base running stat, Fangraph's BSR. We've been talking about it. You've been asking. It's time we tell you. And then we're just going to round it out with a really nice review of what's been going on in the KBO and a primer on some players that we're keeping our eyes on and we think you might be interested in as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the nice parts about the KBO is just really getting to know some players that you've never heard of before. So we thought it would be fun to do a bit of a deep dive, I think, where they go through five players that we've really been keeping our eye on. We'll sprinkle in a few more, tell you who's leading some stats. But I think it's going to be a lot of fun doing a KBO deep dive in addition to the really exciting MLB news. However, before we get into the episode, we do have some housekeeping. We have one really exciting announcement, which is that next week, the Ringer's very own Ben Lindbergh, who is also the host of Fangraph's Effectively Wild podcast, will be a guest on the Alonzo Bet. So if you have any questions you want us to ask Ben, please get in contact with us. You can either DM us or tweet at us at the Alonzo Bet. Send us an email at thealonzobag at gmail.com. But we are really excited to have Ben on for our next episode. So let us know what you want to hear about from him. He's a really interesting guy. Right. And folks, this is a full week's warning. If you don't know how cool Ben Lindbergh is and the cool stuff that he's done yet, you need to go give him just a quick 5-10 minute Google before our episode. You're going to have your mind blown that he's gotten all these amazing opportunities. He's got two great books out right now that Sam and I are going through. And let me tell you... It's awesome stuff. This is going to be a great interview. Um, another uh, little piece of information that came out, as you know, uh, one of our previous guests, Jake Mintz, came on the show and cryptically mentioned towards the end that he's got some big things in the work. He just announced that him and his fellow host, Jordan Schusterman, are starting a podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network called Baseball Barbecue. As with everything with Sesame's Family Barbecue, we know this is going to be fun, yeah. it's going to be insightful, it's going to be a great listen. It's going to be a really exciting listen, and I'm, I'm excited to listen to yeah, it myself. Uh, I think basically what happened over at the Ringer is they heard Jake Mintz come on the Alonzo bed. Yeah, that's what they, I heard. And they said, this guy needs his own podcast. They went and got him one at the Ringer. So I, I'm actually not sure what his other announcement was that he was talking about on our podcast. Yes. The other thing <laughs> I'm wondering is... How did they listen to that episode and think he was the one who needed the deal? You know, I, I think they listened to us and they said, those guys need a deal. So I'm actually expecting a call. Uh, Bill Simmons, the rest of the ringer, if you're listening, I'm expecting a call in the next couple of weeks here. Um, but with that, we're going to just jump into the uh, meat and bones of this episode, which is this crazy proposal, something that we've all been waiting for, to start the MLB season. So there's been a lot of back and forth. There's been a lot that's happened over the last number of weeks. But right now, as of 10 o'clock this morning, we were presented with this Jeff Passan article on MLB.com that outlined a proposal for starting on ESPN. ESPN. Oh, I'm sorry. On ESPN. Jeff Passan is an ESPN yeah. writer. And, and for anyone, you know, you can enjoy our discussion of this. We're going to try to give you the details. But everyone should go and read this article because it really gives you every detail you need to know about the proposal, what are the impediments to it getting passed, right. and all these things. So you should read the article yourself. And it's an original source, so it's always good to go back to the original source and hear some of those things. But let's just break this down for you guys. This proposal is suggesting an 82-game schedule. That's exactly one-half of what a typical MLB schedule would be. Yeah, 81 would be exactly one-half, not to nitpick. Not to nitpick, <laughs> but you are correct, and uh, I'm embarrassed by that 162 <laughs> division. Um, there is spring training in mid-June, uh, so about two, three weeks of spring training. They're shooting for an early July opening date, and a couple big changes to just formatting things around the league. They're looking at expanding the playoffs from 10 to 14 leagues. 14 teams. 14 teams. They're going to put in a universal DH in both the American and National Leagues, and as we mentioned on previous episodes, this proposal does include the play-in format of Teams in the West play the West, American and National League, teams in the Central play the Central, in an effort to minimize travel, and in conjunction with that, they're hoping to play um, games at stadiums, home stadiums when available. 
Yeah, but with crucially with no fans, at least to start the season. Yes, crucially with no fans. And then another aspect of gameplay change uh, is that the rosters will contain as many as 30 players with kind of an NFL-style 20-player taxi squad of minor leaguers and prospects that can come up without the use of options, as far as I understand. Yeah, and I think this is an attempt to basically understand games are going to be played in a compressed amount of time, maybe the normal uh, method of bringing players back and forth between the minors is not going to be fast enough. Right. So you need players really available right away to fill in for injured players or, again, to expand the roster. And another component of that, which we'll speak about in a little bit, is that there may be no minor leagues, right? So these players otherwise would not necessarily be in shape had they not been designated right. taxi squad. So I think it's important um, to understand... This proposal, and especially the viability of it, because what do we care about, Sam? We want baseball Yeah, playing. that's exactly right. So to understand the viability, I think we kind of need to understand the environment that this proposal exists in. It's by no means a sure thing. There's a lot of contention here, and most of that contention, Sam, is kind of around money. That, that's exactly right. And let's get through the main contentious point, and that is... A few weeks ago, the MLB Players Association and the league and owners made an agreement that if the season were to be shortened because of the coronavirus, the players would be paid a prorated salary. So that's to say, for if they play 81 games, they get half of their normal salary in the 162-game season. However, the owners are now coming back and saying, well, that agreement was sort of supposing that there would actually be fans at these games. And now that we know there won't be fans at these games, the owners are saying, hey, 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 we're going to take a big revenue hit here because a lot of the money we make in a given season uh-huh. is from the fans coming, from concession sales. And they're basically saying, we want the players to share in this revenue loss. So what they're proposing is something called a 50-50 revenue split, which is basically the revenue in the season would be split 50-50 between the owners and the players. And Sam, I think before we go into uh, the details of that proposal, I think it's kind of important to um, bring up the fact that, at least in legalese, the contract or the agreement that was signed three weeks ago did explicitly say that the season could not start without, quote-unquote, good faith economic feasibility discussions of playing games in the absence of spectators, or at appropriate neutral sites. So this was something on people's mind in the first place. And I also think it's important to point out that the players and the owners are they're at odds about how people should get paid. And as we'll speak about in a bit, this could force a shutdown of baseball this season. We pray not. But what's crazy is that they have the same incentive. Both parties need the season to be played so that they can make money. That's, you know? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think basically... There are catastrophic scenarios for both groups if the season doesn't happen. The catastrophic scenario for the players is, of course, they just don't make money this year. And as athletes, they really have a limited time frame in their career to make money, especially these players that aren't necessarily stars who are making more like half a million to a couple million dollars a year. Losing out on this payday can really affect their future life and their future finances. They don't know that they're going to get this opportunity again. Well, Sam, there's another major, major point here. What you said can't be understated. This is literally employment versus unemployment for a number of, for a large portion of major leaguers. But as a whole, when you look at the players, I think we all know that there is a significant amount of friction and distrust between the Players Association and uh, the commissioner's office and the owners right now. Um, I'm going to go into some of that when we discuss the current proposal. But... If the season isn't played, from the players' perspective, the Players Association actually has emergency funds to help support players during that time. They will be required to dip into them if the season isn't played. That means that when they go to collective bargaining in a year, they may not have the funds to truly threaten a shutdown of the game. And that weakens their position significantly, and it gives the opportunity for the owners and the commissioner's office to gain some concessions from them that they otherwise could not have because the ultimate bargaining chip of the Players Association, a complete shutdown all in 1994, may not be possible. And, and that's right, and I think 
that is a very strong bargaining chip against the owners both now and in the future because it will be catastrophic for the owners if there is no baseball played this year. The, the constantly rising values of their franchise will, will suddenly have a very steep decline. Uh-huh. Many of them might be forced into insolvency and have to furlough employees, have, possibly have to sell their teams if their families doesn't have en- don't have enough money to take on the losses. And I think there's something to be seen in that it will hurt the long-term health of baseball as a sport. I mean, yeah. after 1994, there was a market drop in fandom of the MLB across the country. Absolutely. And it took a long time for the league to rebuild that trust in their fans to gain their fans back. And I think the very same thing would happen now if the league, if the season didn't happen, especially in this sort of environment where people are just begging for some sports to watch as they're in quarantine, as they're facing these uncertainties in their lives. Like they really want sports as this level of comfort for them. And if they then see that this season isn't happening because billionaires and millionaires can't make a deal, I think the league would lose a ton of fans and a ton of faith in the league if that were the outcome of these negotiations. And on the converse of that, Sam, I think that baseball has an incredible opportunity here. If they can figure things out, they could be the only American sport on television for months. That's right. They could find a way without spectators in the stands to broadcast player voices on air. They could find a way to do in-depth analysis, highlight some of the stars of our game, and they could grow the popularity of baseball so, so much. But as you alluded to previously, this is a complicated issue because you might say, well, forget the billionaire owners, right? They don't need more money. Um, But the truth of the matter is they employ a ton of people and them losing revenue either due to a shutdown or due to giving a large share of it to players could cause the firing of many, many firing or furloughing of many, many employees in the organization. And those are jobs of, you know, normal working guys like you and me. Those aren't billionaires and millionaires. So um, and then, of course, I think the vast majority of people at this point agree that the players are in the right here. Like they signed an agreement. Um, we'll go into some of the arguments, but they're probably in the right. Uh, but this is a complicated issue. So now that you've broken it down in depth, I just want to um, have you go through kind of exactly what the financial sticking points are, what the proposal is, and what's so scary about that to a lot of these players. Yeah, sure. So as I said earlier, the, what the players want is basically their salary to be prorated over the full season. So they get paid for however many games they have over 162 times what their original salary was. And what the owners want is a revenue-sharing system, where basically there's 50-50 revenue-sharing between the owners and players. And the reason the owners want this is they're saying, hey, we're going to take a big hit from revenue, so the players need to take on some of these costs. And let's say we do end up having fans and stuff, then the players have the revenue increase to gain from. Now, the reason the players are very against this is... The revenue-sharing system is a system that's taken on in leagues that have a salary cap. So that's the NFL and the NBA, for example. And they have revenue-sharing where the the salary cap basically says the players get a certain percentage of the league revenue, and that's what sets the salary cap. Now, MLB Players Association has fought against the salary cap for many years because it limits the amount of money that players can make. They want the players to really go into free agency in a true free market. Uh, and, you know, this sticking point over not going to a salary cap system is what caused the 1994 strike. So the Players Association has a long history of saying, we are staying as an uncapped league, and we are going to do everything in our negotiating power we can to prevent that. And another argument from the players is, well, hey, you want us to share in the losses of the revenue, but since this hasn't been a revenue-sharing league in the past sort of five or so years, when these TV contracts have gone through the roof and the revenue has just gone way, way up for the owners, the players have not gotten to share in that revenue increase. So they're saying, hey, why should we take the losses of the revenue if we weren't able to share in the revenue increases? And that's really where the players are saying, hey, this idea of revenue sharing is just not something we're going to accept. And that's the very fundamental argument against it. And I think that's the backbone. But there is also some economic points to it. One is that just using some rough math, Jeff Passan suggested that um, the amount for the players to gain or split basically between the 50-50 split is $2.4 billion. 
And that's really just not that much, especially for some high-paid players in the league. And another risk is I think a lot of uh, virologists and people who study the COVID-19 have pointed to the fact that early lifting of social distancing norms and practices could lead to kind of a trampoline effect in COVID, and we could see another very large spike. If that were to happen, then the playoffs would probably be canceled, which are providing the lion's share over 50% of the total revenue in this um, scenario where, by the way, in this proposal, as we mentioned, there's more postseason teams, which means that the games go from 26 minimum to 43 maximum, up to 36 minimum, 59 maximum, and playoff games make the most revenue. Obviously. Yeah, and we'll note that the reason that the MLB is sort of given for trying to increase the number of playoff teams this year is to offset losses in revenue during the regular season. Right. Um, but I think we mentioned, you know, a little bit earlier that there's a significant amount of distrust between the owners and the Players Association right now. And I think that Tony Clark, the leader of the Players Association Union, um, he has a quote uh, to Jeff Hassan in this article that I think is so, so telling about where the Players Association stands in these negotiations and just how fraught and perilous the future of negotiations are in the next collective bargaining agreement. He says that the attempt to, and I quote, take advantage of a global health crisis to get what they, the owners, have achieved in the past, suggests they know exactly how this will be received, indicating that the Players Association is thinking that the owners are trying to use this revenue sharing as a backdoor to a salary cap, which they've tried to get for years and years, and they're using the um, COVID-19 global health pandemic to take advantage of that. And Those are strong words. Yeah, and there, I mean, there's also this question of there has been a league proposal in the last few months to expand the playoffs to seven teams mm -hmm. per, per league. And universal DA. Yeah, so so the question is, I think it's it's honestly a, a fair question for Tony Clark to be asking, you know, is the league trying to use the leverage of the situation right. to push through things that they've wanted but maybe we'll have seen more resistance to in a normal bargaining period. And, and I know we've talked about this just sort of with each other. I hate the seven playoff teams per league. Like, oh, yeah. I, I, like, the, the MLB playoffs are already random enough that if you're adding two more teams, like, you could, you could literally see 82 win teams winning the World Series. Right, I it's think, a joke. It, well, it is a fine line, though, Sam, and I actually do agree with you, but... If you're talking about, like, the most, quote-unquote, fair way to assess who the best team was in baseball, I think, honestly, it's taking – it's the way they used to do it, which is just taking the American League winner and the National League winner yeah, and, that, like – that's true. But – I think there's some balance to be struck. Right. There's some yeah. balance, and I think when you have seven teams, over half of each league making the playoffs – you get into a really crazy territory where, as Sam mentioned, you are guaranteed basically in the next ten years to have an eighty-one or eighty-two game or eighty-two game winner win the, the World Series, and that's nuts. And, and the other issue with this seven game uh, with the seventeen playoff structure, and this would be more of an issue if it was sort of implemented year to year, so teams had time to respond to this rule, is that teams would lose the incentive to try and be really good. Right. Because as we've mentioned many times on this podcast, the nature of the baseball playoffs is that they're very much a crapshoot because baseball is a game where edges are seen over very large sample sizes. So any team could be any other team in a given seven-game series. Right. But because of that, your entire incentive structure is just to make the playoffs, not to necessarily be the number one seed there. So if you can spend much less and still end up in the playoffs, then teams are going to start having no incentive to play a ton of money for that one piece that might put them over right. the hump. Because really, when all it takes is 83, 84 wins to make the playoffs, almost any team could get hot and accomplish that in a given season. Right. I mean, basically everybody but the bottom dwellers are in that yeah. range. Um, and that, by the way, is something I love so much about baseball, that more so than any other sport, on any given day, a team can go out and romp another team, no matter what the skill disparity is. I will say, you know, as we're always looking for good gambling uh, gambling bets in, on this show, the idea just occurred to me that if there's an 82-game season with 17 playoffs, like... I'm just piling in money on the on worst bad teams, teams, on yeah. bad teams to win the World Series. You I'm might, ten bucks on like every White Sox, Padres, Reds yeah, team like, in baseball. Like you might just get like pretty good odds to make those bets because right. one of those teams could easily win. So beyond what we've just spoken about, the question becomes: Let's say 
the players association and the union cannot or the and the owners cannot reach an agreement let's say the revenue sharing doesn't work and uh the owners are just not willing to pay out full salaries what are the other solutions so jeff passon suggested um deferring money and this is a problem because from the owner's perspective deferring money kind of works because they have a problem currently with just cash flow. They don't have enough money in their organization without the revenue from this year, because there's no spectators, to really pay out full salaries. So by deferring some money, it works. Um, this would obviously require uh, some inflation adjustments, so some interest on the deferred loans. And some players have taken this in the past, some are against it. It's a possible solution. I think it's a reasonable one. But the other outcome, basically, uh, barring some unforeseen circumstances, is that no season is played. And we talked about that a little bit, but let's just talk about specifically what that means. Number one, it means all the players get is the $170 million total for all players that they negotiated three weeks ago. That would be a paltry, paltry sum. Of course, they all lose a year of playing time. As Sam mentioned previously, the free agent market basically crashes next year because... No one's seen anybody play for a year. They're not spending, you know, out of the back of their pockets for somebody who they don't know about. And as I mentioned, it hurts that negotiating position um, for the Players Association. Yeah, and then on the other side for the owners, it's a huge decline in the popularity of baseball. The values of their franchises seriously decrease. They take huge hits to their their current sort of financial solvency. They Some owners might have to sell the teams. I mean... Hopefully the Wilpons do end up selling no matter what the case is. But yeah, it is really a disaster scenario for the league if the season doesn't happen. And that's why my general belief is that these two sides will get something done because for both sides, the end, like the, the, the sort of the not having the season is so bad. Right. The gonna, incentive structure is yeah. so high that they absolutely need They're going to agree on something, but of course... Something needs to be agreed upon. And something that we've sort of skirted over in this entire thing is that before you even get to this whole monetary financial negotiation, you need to figure out a safe way to play. Right. And there's a lot of health concerns. Something that we've seen in other sports, Serie A in Italy, where obviously COVID has been very bad, um, got around this issue by saying that for every test used on a player, they would donate five to hospitals and sick patients. Um, so that's a possibility to kind of help offset what they're doing, but there is a big health problem here. And although we've kind of spent a long time on this, Sam, I think this is a super important topic. And so I do just want to go through kind of what else this affects. We're talking about the season play itself, but the other thing is, do you remember that minor league proposal to cut 40 teams that came out, you know, maybe three weeks to a month before COVID hit? That was wild, and it was gaining momentum. They were getting state legislatures and senators and business owners and uh, the owners of minor league franchises to support this. The owners, that is. Um, obviously, players were super opposed. But now, it's kind of lost the momentum, and maybe this won't go through this year. Maybe we're going to have to wait a couple years till the owners finally push these draconian cuts on the minor leagues. Yeah, although, you know, a very real possibility is that even if there's a major league season, there won't be a... There won't be minor league season. Well, almost season. certainly yeah, there will not be a minor league and season. And that's something we've mentioned already. Another thing that sort of is going to be affected by this this year is the MLB draft. That's right. So what, so what are the proposals for how to alter that this year? So this actually isn't a proposal, Sam. This is a done yeah, deal. Yeah, it's a done deal. Um, the draft is now five rounds. So the first five rounds of the draft will be allotted slot money as they always do. Um, and just for those of you who don't know, like, you know, the number one pick is millions of dollars, like $4 million typically. Um, so five rounds and all the players drafted in the first five rounds are still getting their slot money, but then any unsigned prospects can be signed for 20 K. And this change is massive for a couple reasons. One is it's massive for these amateur players who are looking to start a career in baseball. And for reference, the first round pick of the sixth round typically has a slot value in 300K. And everybody in the in the sixth round had a slot value above 200K in 2019. Yeah, so <coughs> it is a massive loss of, of potential signing money for a lot of these guys. And I think there will be some reverberating effects. So 
Like, number one, just remember, if you don't know how long the draft is normally, it is 40 rounds. Right. So this is a, a massive, massive cut to the number of rounds in the draft. And if you look through any major league roster, there are going to be plenty of guys who are drafted in the sixth round and later. And there are tons of stars who have been drafted in the sixth round or later. Evaluating major league talent is very hard in the draft. Who's your, who's your favorite late drafted star? Well, it's, it's probably a tie between two. I mean, it would be Jacob deGrom. Uh-huh. who I think was like the 8th or ninth round. Yeah, that. something like that. But my number one is Mike Piazza. That's what I wanted you to say. Who was drafted in the 62nd round. As a favor to Tommy, right? Yeah, yeah, as a favor to his dad, who is friends with the Dodgers owner. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Sam's totally right. And the other thing that this affects is... So it affects players massively, especially those going in the Mike Piazza range. Those are guys who could get a shot at playing ball, but just may not because they were uh, amateur free agents in the wrong year, and that's super sad. But the other thing is this will have an effect on teams. My feeling is that since it's just unsigned players are free to sign with teams, and there's going to be thousands of them, um, my feeling is that this is going to benefit quote-unquote storied and -and up-and-coming franchises. This is going to really, really hurt possibly teams like the Indians. Um, who typically could do a really good job in the draft. This could even hurt my Diamondbacks, who over the last couple of years under Mike Hazen have done an amazing job in the draft. But when you have the option of going for the exact same amount, because it's fixed, so the Red Sox or Yankees or the Diamondbacks or the Indians, are you going to Cleveland or are you going to New York? Well, and it'll be interesting to see if players think about this from a player development standpoint, because Mm -hmm. there are certain... There are certain uh, organizations that over the last few years have proved themselves to excel at developing players in like the Dodgers or the Astros. So the question is, do players look at their future and they say, I want to go to a franchise that knows how to develop players and could turn me into a future star as opposed to another franchise that that might not do the same. And as you said, this could decrease parity in the league. However, there's also a, a, a possibility that it decreases other parts of amateur baseball, and that is college baseball. And the reason for this is because the financial value of going into the draft this year is so much less, you might see a lot of people staying in college, maybe going to junior college lineups instead of going to the draft. Right. And that might cause a roster crunch in these places because colleges, junior colleges, they're always expecting some level of roster turnover from their people going to the draft and right. So they offer scholarships, they offer new spots on the team. But if there's suddenly this whole wave of players who are deciding to stay in college, go to junior college instead of the draft, suddenly there are way fewer spots for incoming sort of amateur high school players to these college teams. So, like, this decision is really going to reverberate throughout the entire world of amateur baseball. Yep. Um, and this is something that we'll keep our eye on and we'll keep bringing to you. That's our very in-depth breakdown well, well, of where we're at Before right we now. end this, let's talk about actually why this decision was made. And oh. literally, the reason is purely... I'm so mad about this, yeah. by the way. That's why I black this out, because it just makes me so The, the, the reason is purely... Uh, a, a way to save money in in this the owner's lock, eyes. In, in the owner's eyes, but because the most of the signing bonus pool is allotted in the first five rounds, what we're literally looking at is every team is saving less than a million dollars by cutting out these thirty-five rounds. So we have all these like insane repercussions for players that might be drafted for more amateur baseball players, and all this is to just penny pinch a million dollars per team, which is... You're almost certainly losing, Sam, a future perennial all-star this year because the owners each individually don't want to lose less than one million dollars, which is nothing. Like, literally losing out on one, like, 50 future value prospect is like losing out on, like, 40 or 50 million dollars of value to the organization... And they're doing this to save less than a million dollars. It is an absolutely laughable and insane, short-sighted decision by the owners. But, you know, this sort of decision is something that maybe makes me lose a little faith in how these negotiations are going to go. Like, are the owners really so short-sighted in how they're making decisions that they are willing to save money at all costs? I really hope not. But that's what it looks like from some of the way they've been acting. Right. Well, it raises the question, Sam, like, do the own, are the owners just so scared about money right now? Are they just so greedy slash concerned about their bottom line that they're willing to do this? Or do they truly not appreciate the value of the amateur draft? And I think it's probably a little bit of both. 
There's a lot of comments in the past and a lot of attitude from the owners towards the draft, indicating a significant lack of understanding of the value that they received there for the cost. Um, and so this is just infuriating either way um, and is definitely going to cost some great guys who've worked their asses off for years the opportunity to live out their dreams and play the greatest sport on the planet. And, uh, you know, it, it really frosts me, but that's the way the baseball's going right now. We're just going to have to see how this all shakes out, Sam. Yeah, and I, that was a, a very long introductory section of the news, but I think it was a really interesting discussion and a discussion that has to be had. But with that, let's move to everyone's favorite segment, and that is Stat Corner. That's right. And today we're going to be talking about base running runs, which is a metric on Fangraphs that is used in the war calculation. Uh, and we've brought it up sort of a bunch of times over the last few episodes, so we thought it's time to actually, let's just explain it to you guys so you know exactly what it is. So what is base running runs? How is it calculated? What are the components of it? Take us through there. So base running runs brings in three different components of running the bases, okay? It brings in stolen bases, and we'll you know, break these down a little further, each one. But it brings in stolen bases. It brings in bases taken, extra bases taken on the base paths. And it brings in double plays, which is basically everything that you can affect as a runner on the field. So going one by one, stolen bases basically just comes in through the value of a stolen base versus the value of caught stealing compared to the rest of the league. Yeah. And... Something that's really interesting to note here, I think, is that stealing a base is pretty valuable. It's worth about two-tenths of a run, 0 0.2. And that's basically just from, from moving a runner up, you're more, it's more likely that they score. Right. Yeah. So, and again, every 10 runs roughly is a win. So basically, every 50 stolen bases is a win. Yeah. Which actually isn't that valuable, if you think about it. And I think that that can explain why you haven't seen so much... Um, of stealing bases because you can accumulate a win with your bat way easier and no reason to get, and that brings us into the next part, no reason to get caught stealing whose value is way more significant. Yeah, and the reason that getting caught stealing is more significant than the value gained from stealing is not only do you lose a runner from the base paths, but you also add an out to your team. And we've talked so many times on this podcast about how getting on base is so much more valuable than getting an out. So imagine how disastrous it is Disastrous it is when you already have gotten on base and then you just turn the fact that you're on base into an out. Right. And something that you can see is getting caught stealing is more than two times as harmful to your team than getting a stolen base. So while Aaron said... Closer to three times yeah. than two times. It's 0 0.2 for stealing a base minus 0 0.53 for getting caught on the base pass. I think it's 4-3 now, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, okay. It changes year by year, but in 2019, it was minus 0.43, but that's sort of, if you sort of tried to find the the equilibrium of when stealing a base was a profitable endeavor for your team, so this is a little game theory for those of yeah. you uh, who, who enjoy games. So basically, if you had a percentage uh, success rate at stealing, you would need the amount you gain times the success rate minus the amount that you're caught times your losing rate to be equal to zero. So basically, you need to be successful about 70% of the time to make stealing a base worth it. And that's not easy to do, especially as pitchers are getting quicker to the plate. They're getting better at holding runners on. Mm -hmm. Catchers are getting faster with their pop times. So all these are conspiring to make stolen bases a lot less profitable of an endeavor for teams to undertake. Right. And so that's one aspect there. Another aspect, as we mentioned, is taking extra bases. This is a sub-stat, quote-unquote, called UBR, and it basically takes the run expectancy of either advancing or not advancing on a given hit and situation compared to the rest of the league. So let's say uh, a runner goes first to third on a weekly hit ball to right field. Well, a lot of players are going first to third on that ball, so it's valuable because you did it. But it's actually uh, not super important unless you're not able to do it. It doesn't yeah. hold a great positive value. But conversely, if you go first to third on a line drive to left field, now that holds a ton of value because most hitters can't do that. And the difference between having a runner on second and third, as we all know, is much, much more significant. Especially if there's fewer than two outs. Especially so. with less than two outs. 
Um, I had a coach in high school who always used to say there's something like 27 ways to score from third and only three to score from second. Um, I never could count up the ridiculous number he said, but it gives the idea. Uh, and so this is just, again, you have your stolen bases, but then you have how quickly can you round the bases and how valuable are you? And I think this brings up some interesting guys because you're going to see some guys in base running leads uh, in most recent years where steals have gone down who you don't think of as super fast. And one of those is Max Muncy. Yeah, Max Muncy was actually 15th in the league in base running runs last year. And he's just not a guy that you, like like Aaron said, really see, you know, stealing a lot of bases, but he does a good job of advancing the extra bag. And because of that, you can see people, uh, you can see him gaining base running value. And then the, the last component of base running is basically... Pretty simple. It's weighted ground balls grounding into double plays. So basically it's, you know, given the number of opportunities you had to hit into a double play, how often you did it, be, did you do it? Because, you know, on on the stat line, a double play is the same as, as getting out any other way. Your right. score is getting it out. But of course, taking a runner off the bases and you getting out, giving two outs to the pitcher... They call it the pitcher's best friend for a reason. It hurts your team way more. Right. So base running sort of takes that to, into account as well. And if you want to see the best base runners in the league last year, looking at the leaderboards, Jonathan VR, who you know does steal a lot of bases, had 10.5 base running runs above average. He steals a lot of bases, but he also really runs the bases. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so VR was at 10.5 base running runs above average. So basically a full win above average on the base paths. Uh, second was Mal Smith, who was Aaron's ultimate speedster mm-hmm. in our five-tool player segment last year. Yelich, Acuna, Trout, Jose Ramirez, Trey Turner, Trevor Story, some other guys in the top ten. If you're then looking for the worst base runners in baseball last year, number one was a guy who we've talked about before as being possibly the worst fielder in the league last year, <laughs> and that's Vladdy Jr. So again, you know, we've been tough on Vladdy Jr. on this pod I still think he's going to be a stud, but, you know. Yeah, he's, he's a star in the league, but he's got some things he, to work he's on. He's got some things to clean up. The second worst runner is someone who I think will surprise nobody, and that's Miggy, Miguel oh Cabrera. Him moving in the last couple of years. And, is like and, and if movie. you think back to, uh, you know, Miguel Cabrera's triple crown year, his back-to-back MVPs uh-huh. where he won over Mike Trout, I think a lot of people's arguments for Mike Trout is Mickey was a guy who was losing a lot of value on the base paths, losing a lot of value in the field, and at that point in his career, Trout was gaining a lot of value. I mean, he's still gaining a lot of value on the base paths. He was gaining even more value in the field. So I think, you know, in modern-day baseball, a lot of people are saying Trout should have won those awards. But, you know, no one's no one's saying maybe he's not an incredible player. He's a Hall of Famer. But those are not the strong parts of his game. Strong parts of his game are he just absolutely bricks. Yeah. And as usual, uh, that rounds up our stat corner. If we left any questions unanswered on this stat, or if you want to hear another stat featured in a future episode, make sure to reach out to us at the Alonzo Bet on Twitter or the Alonzo Bet at gmail.com. We're always checking both. And with that, we're going to run into our final segment here, uh, which is just kind of going through some of the stuff going on in KBO. This is the baseball we have. We're making the best of it, and we're enjoying uh, the games that we've seen. So let's just start off very basically, Sam, here with who's hot right now through the first six or seven games, who's not. Yeah, so if we just look at the KBO 2020 standings, and for those who uh, did not listen to the last episode, where am I looking at this? It is mykbostats.com. The number one team right now is the... Please excuse us. We're going to try to get the pronunciations right as best as we can. We know we're going to butcher that, and but, we mean no we, offense. Yeah, we might, we might butcher stuff really bad. If you know the correct pronunciation, let us know. Yeah, record so a video and yeah, send it to so us, So we please. don't make these mistakes in the next episode. But the number one team is the Kaiwoom Heroes. They are 6-1. and one. The NC Dinos are 5-1. and one. The Lot Giants are also 5-1. and one. And if you remember last episode, Aaron talked about how they're sort of like the Chicago Cubs of the... Um, before of, the their championship. Yeah, before the Cubs championship of the KBO. So this is a very exciting start to the season for the for the Giants. And something we'll talk about a bit later when we sort of go through some of the players that we're, we're watching in the league is that the Giants are sort of at the forefront of the 
Moneyball revolution of the KBO. Uh-huh. They've they've hired a lot of new analytics staff, and they're really sort of trying to move to a more advanced way of thinking about baseball, like sort of like the MLB has moved in the last few years, and and they're at the forefront of that in the KBO. If we're then looking at some teams that are not doing as well as the teams at the top, the KT Wiz and the SK Wyverns are right in the bottom of the league at one and five. Yeah, they're struggling. And uh, you know, you uh, you might remember Jake Mintz of Cespedes Family Barbecue was a guest on our podcast a couple episodes ago. If you've been following Cespedes Family Barbecue on Twitter, as you should, you'll know that both Jake and Jordan have adopted the KT Wiz as their KBO uh-huh. team, so they can't be happy about the Wiz's start to the season. Tough start. I mean, these guys are Orioles and Mariners fans, and and they're Wiz fans in the KBO. They chose more suffering. Yeah, it's not it's not a great situation for them, but you know, and uh, you know, I've tried to watch as much uh, KBO as I can. I gotta say, my sleep and work schedule is not very compatible with watching yeah. these games, so I've mostly been watching highlights. But from what I understand, the Wiz have blown a few games. Yeah. Their bullpen is not great, and and for anyone who's been watching the KBO, you'll know that the bullpens are not really at the same level as MLB bullpens. So really, any game could go anyway could, after could, the start. Could of it. could be pretty exciting, even if a team's up four or five runs. And just a couple guys who are really excelling right now. Um, Han Dong Min from SK Wyverns actually has four bombs. It obviously hasn't helped him much, but he's got four. And just below him, Preston Tucker from the lot or from the Kia Tigers is at number two. Um, the SK Wyverns also have the stolen base leader, Kim Chang Pyong, who has five. And then uh, in K's, Cha Wu Chan and Dan Straley are tied with 15. They're on the Twins and the Lot Giants. But Ex-major leaguer Odorizmer Despagna, my oh, absolute boy, is go. right behind them at 14, and he only has one walk. So he's sporting that stellar 14.0 K to walk ratio right now. That is a uh, that is a nice thing to have. Really and, tremendous. And if he could keep that going, it would be a great season for him. Now, in addition to sort of just taking you through some some of the leaguers in the team in the in the league right now, both teams and players, we wanted to sort of highlight five players that we find to be interesting stories in the KBO this year. And if we don't pick a player you like, you know, let us know. Tell us what player has you really excited, and we'll try to talk about right. them on a future episode. Because until MLB comes back, you know, KBO is the baseball we're going to be talking about. This is our baseball. Um, so, uh, and one other exciting development in the KBO is that Fangraphs has actually added stats for KBO players, mm-hmm. KBO player pages, and they've sort of... Uh, supplemented my KBO stats by adding more of these advanced stats to analyzing the KBO. So it's a nice other place to look at stats. So we're going to take you through some KBO players that we have our eyes on. Number one is Baiko Kong. And sorry, again, if I get the pronunciation wrong, but Baiko Kong is basically the Juan Soto of Korea. He's only 20 years old. In 2019, as a 19-year-old, he had a 153 WRC+, hit 336, and a 416 on base percentage. This year, to in his 27 plate appearances, he already has three home runs, has a 176 WRC+, 370 OPP, 760 slugging yeah. percentage. I mean, this guy absolutely rakes. And something to note about him is you really might see him in the MLB before all things are said and done. Kylie McDaniel, who used to work for Fangraphs as a prospects writer and now works for ESPN, uh, tweeted out today, I think, that uh, if, you know, if Baiko Kong was eligible for the draft, Kylie sees him as a first-rounder, maybe even first half of the first-rounder. Yeah. So this is really an elite talent, a young star in the KBO. And we're talking about an outfielder who's about six foot, 215, so not a massive guy, but obviously plenty of pop. And for some reason, uh, last year, he even tossed a game on the hill. You know, he tossed just a solid inning. And everyone knows those that you gotta love a position player pitching. Gotta love a position player pitching. So he's super exciting. He's on the KT Wiz, so even if they're struggling, you know, maybe they have a bright star there if he can stick into KBO. Um, another guy that we're keeping our eye on is X, uh, not major leaguer, but uh, X fringe major leaguer, Dixon Machado. Yeah, so, I mean, he played major league games. Yeah. So in that sense, he was a major leaguer. And Dixon Machado is the darling of KBO Twitter right now. He is. 
And this is a guy who's played, like, basically 148 Major League games or so. Most of it with the Tigers, a small stint with the Cubs last year. Um, but a guy who really never had a lot of pop. You know, only one year in the minor leagues had an ISO over 100. He was 137 in 2014 in 90 games. But that was double A. He's never had a lot of pop. He's never really been a good hitter. I mean, yeah, his career major league ISO is .068. But interestingly enough, Sam, in 2019, when he moved to the Cubs organization, he did play 102 games in AAA. He had a 295, or sorry, a 219 ISO. Somehow still only a 107 WRC plus, though. So even when he was getting some power, he wasn't a great hitter. But so far this year... He's been a monster for the yeah, lot Giants. So, so he had two career home runs in the major leagues and 505 plague appearances. He now has three home runs in the KBO in 26 plague appearances. So he's already surpassed his major league totals. He has a 192 WRC+, 348 average, 400 on base percentage, 783 slugging percentage. And if you've watched any of his at-bats, he is absolutely smoking the ball in the KBO. So, you know, maybe... Dixon Machado's path is something like Eric Thames a few years ago, where he had no success in the major leagues, came over to the KBO, revamped his swing. Mm-hmm. Now he's crushing. Like, do you think we'll see him back in the majors at some point? If he keeps hitting like this, maybe. Maybe. You never know. Um, and one thing to mention here is there is some chatter out of the KBO world that maybe the ball is juiced this year. That's right. Um, yeah. And that's something that we'll get to if it gains a little bit more steam, but something to keep an eye on. So another guy out of the lot, Giants, an ex-big leaguer with actually a much longer and storied career, is Dan Straley. Dan Straley pitched many, many years in the majors. He had a couple... A lot of different teams. For a lot of different teams. He was on the A's, the Cubs, the Astros, the Reds, Marlins, Phillies, Orioles. And he had a couple serviceable years. You know, he uh, had a couple ERAs under four, a couple fifths under four. But mostly, he was a workhorse type who was giving you... Um, you know, over a hundred innings of serviceable baseball. He's a guy I used he wasn't, to... He wasn't great. He wasn't great. Yeah. But he is a guy I used to like to stream uh, for quality starts because he used to sneak five and a third, three strikeouts, yeah. one earned run. And, and honestly, guys... Six, sorry, in the third. For all you fantasy heads right, like out there, once the season comes back, like you're going to have to tune into this pod just to have Aaron carry you to victory in your leagues. Like, you got to understand that this guy is a fantasy legend, <laughs> and we need the season to come back just to let him show you guys his skills. You haven't even seen our most valuable segment yet, which is our <laughs> fantasy breakdown. Um, but trust me, when we get there, you will see it. But going back to Dan Straley here, um, he has just been a monster so far. His last outing was seven scoreless, 11 Ks, no walks against SK Wyverns. But something to point out is that his two starts this year have Cub versus the Wyverns and the Wiz were the two worst teams. Yeah, and another thing to another interesting thing to mention about Australia is that I mentioned earlier that the Giants are a team that has sort of adopted a new analytics mindset, and Australia is a pitcher that has sort of adopted a very uh, analytical mindset. He's a big proponent of working at driveline, uh, which is where you know Trevor Bauer works as well. They are very into sort of the cutting edge and pitch development uh-huh. in learning how to throw faster, d- pitch design. You know, this is where the best pitching development is going on in the country. And actually, uh, Ben Lindbergh, who's coming on our podcast next year, uh, sorry, next week, uh, writes a lot about driveline baseball and their founder, Kyle Bodie, in his book, uh, The MVP Machine. So hopefully we'll have some discussion about, the, uh, about driveline with Ben. But it's interesting that the, this analytically-minded pitcher has come to the most analytically-minded organization in the KBO and is just absolutely dealing so. Yeah. Um, and that brings us to Roberto Ramos, who's a member of the LG Twins. Now, this is a guy who actually doesn't have a major league career, but played many seasons in the Rockies minor league system, played about six full seasons in the, minor, in the Rockies minor league system. And in 2019, Sam, this is such a head-scratcher to me, he had a 135 WRC plus in 127 games for the Rockies AAA affiliate, um, who I believe is the isotopes right yeah. now. And he plays first base, which is a position of need for them. And they 
didn't really want to take a chance on him. So he went to the KBO, and he's been raking. Yeah, in, in six games, he has 26 plate appearances. Argy has three home runs. He has a 478 ISO, 913 slugging percentage, and a 250 WRC+. Plus. I mean, we're talking about a guy that is just absolutely out of his mind right now. And, of course, it's a six-game sample size. Right. We're not going to say he's going to do a whole season like this. But he's a guy who really, over the last three years, has been a good hitter in the Rockies minor league system. And it's it's sort of surprising that nobody wanted to give him a chance anywhere and he ended up in the KBO. But but maybe if he keeps hitting like this, he's, he's proving that he is a good bat and, and we might see him back in the MLB in not too long. Yeah, and Sam, when you asked me if I think that Dixon Machado is going to make an Eric Tim's journey, I find it much more likely that Roberto Ramos makes that journey because he's a guy who really did have success in the minors and seems like he could be a serviceable major leaguer. Ended up in uh, Korea, and very well we could see him back in the majors at some point. So we've kind of gone through a young player, a very exciting young star in the Korean League, three ex-major leaguers uh, or major league affiliate players who are finding themselves in the KBO, and we want to round it out with kind of a KBO legend who's still in the league, and we were looking him up, we loved his stats, and that's Byung-ho Park. Yeah, so Byung-ho Park is an absolute monster in the KBO. He won back-to-back MVPs for the Heroes in 2012 and 2013. But then in 2014 and 2015, he arguably had even better seasons. Mm -hmm. He hit over 50 home runs in both of those seasons, uh, had ISOs of 383 and 371. So this is a guy with an insane amount of pop. He had a can of soup in the majors, with the Twins in 2016, staying in the twin, Twins AAA affiliate in 2017. But then in 2018 and 2019, he came back to the KBO, continued to rake the, to the tune of a 184 and 160 WRC+. Plus. This is a guy that's over 160 WRC+, plus basically every season since 2012. Uh, the beginning of the season so far, he's been slumping a little bit. But, I mean, with, Seven his, games. Yeah, with his track record, I'm not worried about it at all. I mean, this guy, he's 33, and he just, he's basically, I, uh, when we were talking about this before the episode started, you sort of called him like a Pujols or Mickey of yeah. the KBO. And I think that's exactly right. Just a legendary, yeah. transcendent hitter, maybe coming to the end of his usefulness period, but obviously still a contributor on uh, the Kai Moon Heroes, and hopefully... For them, somebody who can turn this around as they uh, lead the division very early in the season this year. So um, that kind of wraps up our uh, KBO review from the last week and kind of primer into some of the players we're keeping an eye on, which wraps up our episode. Uh, so thank you guys so much for joining us uh, once again. And please, you know, get in touch with us at the Alonzo Bet on Twitter if you want to give us some questions to ask Ben next week or just if you have any thoughts on what we've talked about, anything you want to hear from us, get in contact with us at the Alonzo Bet or the Alonzo Bet at gmail.com. That's all, folks. Thank you.